Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi. Welcome to Finders Grievers, a happy-ish podcast about sad things. I'm your host, Shohana Sharman. So, guess what day is just around the corner? That's right, it's Father's Day. Or, for many people, Fatherless Day. Fun times, I know. And to keep the fun of this day going, this week I'm chatting with one of the funniest people in Canadian comedy today, Alana Riach. Alana is a comedian and writeress who has written for CBC Radio, CTV's The Comedy Network, CBC, and The Second City Main Stage. She is a five-time Canadian Comedy Award nominee, a Canadian Screen Award nominee, and winner of the Tim Sims Encouragement Fund Award. When not writing and performing, she reviews books for Canadian website Parton and Pearl and Moonlights as a freelance editor. She would be happy to proofread your essay. So, Alana and I talked for nearly two hours for this recording, and yet we somehow forgot to record an introduction. But sometimes it's better to just dive right in, right? Can you just tell me a little bit about your dad? Yeah. Um, yeah, my dad's name was Bill Riach. He was um, he was a very quiet person, um, very, very smart, very uh, in control of his emotions, which is uh, the opposite of me. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. He was kind of like everyone's dad like (laughs) like oh like I don't know people were just very drawn to him but he's he was very very introverted and spent a lot of time alone (laughs) yeah and I loved him and he was my best friend he loved the movies he loved going to movies that was the thing he also was I think he had aspirations in his life to be a writer but he he wasn't a professional writer um but he had this manuscript that he worked on all the time. The weekend would be his time. So he set up this old laptop that really was for nothing except this manuscript. So it, it was just the bare bones of a laptop. Like, you know, old school laptops with like the blue background and then the white text as you type, like the old school world programs. So he would work on this manuscript on the weekends. And I think sometimes he would send it out for like to see if it you know any there was ever any interest in it I don't think there ever was I have it in my um in my closet my mom gave it to me once like in this big um leather bound um folder with like all of his writing so that he used to write a lot of poetry and I've never I've never read it 
because I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It feels really private. And also I'm worried. Any of it? I've read some of the poems. There were a couple poems. There's actually a poem about me when I'm a baby that I've, that I read. And I don't know, it feels really like crossing someone's boundaries. Like I think if someone were to read my journal, if I was dead, I, I would feel very strange about it. But I've never read the manuscript itself. I feel like it'll be really emotional for me for lots of reasons. One, because I am a writer. So uh, if it, it like if it's <laughs> if it's bad, I'm gonna feel embarrassed <laughs> for my dad. You know what I mean? Um, I don't think it'll be bad, but like I because I am a writer, I know if writing is good and I I just don't know if I can know mm-hmm. you know what I mean I have thoughts sometimes of like I wonder if there's some part of me that's like meant to read it and and turn it into the book that he always sort of wanted to write but that also feels really um invasive for some reason like it just feels really private to read someone's writing that isn't published and is sort of just their like passion project when they haven't given me permission and I, you know, (laughs) it's not like I can ask if I can read it. So yeah, I don't know. It's just, I still haven't after eight years built up the, I don't know, emotional wherewithal to open it up and read it. So I don't know if I ever will. I'm, I think maybe one day, but I don't know. And it's okay. And that's fine. Maybe I'll never read it. Yeah. I, I have like memories of, of being with him and feeling like really like peaceful and like everything is, was sort of like as it should be, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we would have a lot of those kinds of experiences together. My memories right now of him are still caught up in those last few weeks, unfortunately, of his life. It used to be a lot more intense. Um, like sort of his last two weeks of life were really, really traumatic. And there were a couple of really big days in those two weeks that I used to play on loop, like in my head, like 24 seven. And this is sort of how my brain works anyways, with most things that are upsetting. It just sort of like latches on and then plays and plays and plays. I have hoped in my life that, that I would be able to move away from that. And I have in some ways, But when people ask me questions like that, like, what do you remember about your dad? Truthfully, the first things I think about are those days. I don't know if I'll ever get to a place where, where that isn't the first thing I think of. Like, I hope so. Anyway, that's a very morbid answer to your question. (laughs) But it's a really accurate one because I actually feel exactly the same way when anytime someone asks me about my mom, the first memories I think of is like the last week of her life when she was in the coma. That was the most painful part of the entire experience. And that's what my mind goes to first. And I also wonder like, will there be a day when someone asks me what my mom was like? And I'll think of like, oh, she liked colorful saris or something like that. And I think, I don't know, like I, and I'm the wrong person to ask because it's been (laughs) like, it's been eight years in last November and I, these still are my main memories. Mm. I always thought my dad was the most just calm human being. Like, I always thought, wow, like, what a very calm and disciplined person. And now that I'm an adult, I think he was a very, very anxious person who learned how to keep it under control. 
and spent a lot of time mastering keeping it under wraps. Whether that's healthy or not, I don't know. It's not for me to say, but that was his, like, that's sort of how he coped with it. I, I was always very, very close to my dad. I think it started, and that's not to say that I'm not close with my mom. I am close with her. But when I was growing up, um, she worked a lot of shift work. So she would be, there were a lot of days on the weekends and stuff where I would spend them with my dad because she had to sleep, right? Like, cause, because she had to get up at, you know, whatever time to work overnight because she's a nurse. Um, so she, because of that, I remember a lot of my free time being with my dad. So I think because of that, we sort of formed a bond or that I sort of started to think of him as like, this is the person that I can go to with my my problems because this is the person that I spend a lot of time with. I, I would say always from day one. And then I think like with moms, you always have, especially if you're a daughter, I mean, I don't know if this happened for you, but we definitely butted heads a lot. And so especially when I was a teen. So I think he, he sort of acted as like a, a mediator between the two. And I, I think because of that, I also felt closer to him for parts of my life. So yeah, I definitely felt like he was my person. And it took me a very, very long time with my partner to let him be a person that I trusted as much as that. When I was building my relationship with Lance, I definitely know that that was like a huge thing for me is like, no one will, I will never trust any other person as much as I trusted my dad. Now, this is not true. Now I trust Lance implicitly, but it took me so long to get to that point. It's weird, especially my dad. This has come up for me lately of like realizing times when my dad was wrong because after someone dies, it feels like, oh, well, I don't want to. I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but like he was wrong sometimes, right? Like he, there's definitely advice I've been given in my life that I realize now is like that may have worked for him, but is not something that works for me. Mm. And it's almost painful sometimes to be like that. You didn't know how to do that. <laughs> like that. I can't idolize you and put you up on this pedestal because you're, you're dead. Yeah. I have to think of you as still as a whole human. Yeah. And I think that that can be, that's always been – that's been difficult for me to think of him as a human being. Yeah. I lost my mom three and a half, almost four years ago now. And I'm just now coming up to that piece of like – because for the past three years, I've been like, she was an angel. You cannot yeah. say a single little thing about her. Even though I had all these complicated feelings about, you know, stuff that happened. Because like, yeah, she and I fought like cats and dogs because she and I were very different. Like we were very similar like, I yeah. am, like, a carbon copy of her, except she grew up in Bangladesh with, like, Bangladeshi ideals, and I grew up on this side of the world with, like, very different ideals. And so we would butt heads constantly. And after she died, I was like, it's all forgotten forever. <laughs> but now, like, <laughs> now, four years later, I'm like, no, it's not forgotten. Like, she, she said some things that really hurt and did some, like – underlying long-term damage that I'm yeah. still unlearning, that I'm still healing from. And that's okay. Like, I think being able to hold both sides of your parent to be like, yes, they were, they were an amazing parent to me. They brought me up. They gave me everything I needed. But also they were also just a human who was trying their best and sometimes fell short. To be able to hold both of those is still an ongoing struggle. So, Yeah. And this is, 
there was a moment where I remember when he was sick, where I had, I had like auditioned for something or I had, I, I, it was like, I forget what it was, but it was like a panel show or something like that. And I, I didn't do very well in the, in the, um, in the audition. And I remember saying to him, I'm really, I'm really upset that I didn't do well. And he was in the middle of, of radiation and he was in the middle of his illness and he was still himself, but he was different. He had a brain tumor. So his personality was altered. I remember his answer being like, well, if you feel bad, work harder. And I, I took that in and I was like, yeah, when you feel bad, you should work harder. And I have held on to that as though I'm like living in uh, tribute to him by when I feel bad, I work harder. And I do not think <laughs> that that's actually something that I uh, believe in. Mm -hmm. But it's only taken me until re very recently, maybe the last year, year and a half, to separate that, that idea from it be coming from him. Mm -hmm. So like by being like, I actually don't think I believe in this, even though this is something that I've been trying to do to honor him or and also as a as a coping strategy. Right. Like and to run away from deep feelings, but to pull those two things apart and just say, like, just because he said that doesn't mean that you have to live that <laughs> even though you you adored him and he was one of the very most important people to you. You don't have to subscribe to his uh, ideals. Mm. And that, that's been really hard, too, to sort of, yeah, to, to grapple with that. The, the I, fact that I might not hold some of the same beliefs or that they no longer work for me because <laughs> they don't. I can't work my way through feeling bad. It doesn't, it doesn't go well. <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit, where were you in life when when – he got sick. I had just turned 25. So <clears throat> just before it was confirmed that he was sick, I think he was having issues with remembering words. And um, the thing that I think the major thing that happened is that my dad, um, he used to meditate every morning and mm -hmm. he did for, I don't know, 30 years. Um, but he had a mantra that he, he said was a secret. He always was like, it was given to me. I'm not supposed to tell anybody, but it's, I repeat it every day, whatever. But he, he couldn't remember it. He like went after 30 years of, of using this mantra, went to meditate and couldn't remember it and then never remembered it ever again. Oh, wow. So th I think that was the first indication for him. Like, oh, <laughs> something's up. Mm -hmm. Um they came home, me and my mom came home from getting the results and they told me in the kitchen that he had a brain tumor. Hmm. Oh, I hear your cat. <laughs> just, just making but, herself known in the worst yeah, time possible. <laughs> no, I think it's perfect. But they told me in the kitchen and then I, I was really, I didn't know how to process that information. So I went to my room and I remember he came to my room and I remember that he was just like, I'm going to have the surgery. They're going to remove it. If that means that I like can't speak anymore or like, that's fine. I just remember him saying, like, I think he was just really trying to be positive 
So I remember the doctor coming in the surgery after the surgery to tell my mom. Uh, and he was like, unfortunately, these tumors are a lot more trouble than they're worth. I remember he described it that way. And he was a very nice doctor. I also remember him talking to me about having taken an improv class. And I was like, I don't care about this. <laughs> but he was trying, like, he was really trying to be a human being, like, with me. You know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. he could see, like, oh, this is a young person that just needs to have a conversation that isn't about this. But I remember being like, okay, great. You took an improv class. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. There's, I mean, yeah, I appreciate the effort, but there truly is no worse time to tell me about your improv experience. Oh my God. Imagine, right? Like, but he was like, oh yeah, improv. I don't know. It was very strange. And he said it to me over my dad's body. Like he, like it was like, not his, like, he was still alive, but he was asleep, and we were in the room. I rem- It was very strange. But that's the, like, that's the whole thing about illness is, like, it's just those kinds of moments over and over and over and over again interspersed with horror. It's, like, you vacillate wildly between absolute tragedy and then absolute ridiculous moments. And there's nothing in between. Yeah. There's nothing in between. And so it's just, it's like impossible to navigate anything that's happening in those times, especially when it's in a really short period of time. I think it's like, what the fuck is happening? I just felt that like that constantly. People are saying things to me that I have never heard anyone say to another person in their life. (laughs) Like people would message me and be like, "Um, I know how you feel because my cat got sick and I'd be like, what the hell is happening? This is all objectively extremely funny, but I can't appreciate it for what it is because I don't know if I, if any of this is actually happening. It is absolutely the most surreal experience of your life. I know. And it shocks me constantly to think about how many times I didn't snap I think my, like the last few years of my life have just been me making up for all the times I didn't snap at that point. Because like, (laughs) I remember going, coming from the hospital, just the things that were happening at the hospital were absolutely unbelievable and heinous. Like it would be like, my dad can't remember words anymore. So now he's speaking to me in a sentence of words that don't, that don't make sense. So he would be like, argument, book, computer, desk. And it would be as though he had just said a sentence to you. And it would be like going from that to seeing a person who would be like, oh, I have a stomach pain and I've been Googling it all night. And I think like, I wonder if if I've got like a cancer. And I'm like, are you saying that to me right now? Like, you know what I mean? Where you're just like, what are you doing? Yeah. But you just kind of like go along with it and you're like, okay, like, I guess that's your experience right now. And knowing that it's absurd. Yeah. And just not, not being able to sink down into that absurdity enough to like do anything about it. I felt a lot of times like I was just passing through a fog. Yeah. Where like things were happening to me 
Like I was not an active participant in my life. I had one of those where I actually called the person out, and to this day I feel really guilty about it. Um, this was like towards like a month before my mom died, so she was pretty sick. She was like the doctors wouldn't keep her in the hospital for a long time. They would like keep her for a couple of days, and they would tell us like just take her home. She has a month. She would be more comfortable at home. So we would bring her home, and then like two days later. She got. She has a fever again. We need to take her to the ER. So, a lot of my nights at that time would be that I like we would have to take her to the ER, and she would get she wouldn't get a room. She would just get a bed. She spoke English, but not well enough to be on her own in the hospital. So I would stay overnight in the hospital, and what I'd usually do is like I'd find like a blanket or something, and I would put it on the floor, and I would just like sleep on the hospital floor next to her bed. And then I'd wake up in the morning. I would, you know, wash my face and go to work. That was my life for like a month and a half. And it was one day I was at work.、Um, my one of my closest friends actually was working at the same organization at that time, and she and I would have lunch together every day. And so、uh, it was, you know, we were sitting at lunch, like eating, and she. Kept complaining about like how she couldn't sleep properly last night. She was just like,、oh, I don't know. I just kept tossing and turning, and like, I don't know. Like, I just like my mind just wouldn't stop racing. I just was like, like she kept going for a couple of minutes, and then I was like, I'm so sorry, but you know, I slept on the fucking hospital floor last night, right? And she just looked so shocked. Like she hadn't tuned it. She knew what was going on in my life at that time, but I think、mm-hmm. as Outsiders, even though you know, like objectively, yes, this is a shitty thing that's happening. You don't really connect the dots. So she knew I had spent the night in the hospital. She just didn't think, like, right, you were literally slept on the floor last night and then got up and came to work. So I was like, it's maybe not cool that you're complaining about not sleeping well when you know this has been my life for a while. And she was like, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mean.、It. And I felt so bad, but at the same time, I was also like. This is shitty. Like what you're doing is not great. So maybe stop. <laughs> I don't think you should feel bad about that at all. I think you should put that put that bag down and say it's good that I did that because I I actually think that people who are going through traumatic situations often don't set boundaries properly anyway. And unless you've been in that situation, it is really difficult to know when you're doing. Too much or too little, and and it's really difficult to advocate for yourself when you're on the receiving end of something like that. So I actually think you did her a favor because she will never do that to someone else again, and and that's okay. Like it's okay to set those kinds of boundaries. Like I remember one of my closest friends saying to me, you know, most people most people can sympathize, but they cannot empathize with what you're going through, and there is a really big difference. This that whole like. Uh, thing that people are like, I just can't imagine what you're going through. It's like, no, you can't. Like, <laughs> and there's no need to tell me that you can't. Like, I know you can't. I I think it's good to to remind people when they're overstepping their boundaries. I I don't think that's causing anyone harm. I think it's actually doing them a favor, especially if they're your friend, right? Because it's always done in love, and you can always set a boundary with your friend. And this is me saying that as a person who does not. <laughs> know how to set boundaries well, and is always like, I don't like that, and then runs away. But I, I, I think you should set. I think you should forgive yourself for that. I had a lot of. I don't know what to call them other than like dark nights of the soul. But like, I just had a lot of like 
up in the middle of the night being like, I have no grip on what reality is. I was very angry. Nothing is predictable. First of all, I could not predict for you how I was going to react to anything. Maybe I was going to have a wonderful day. Maybe I was going to have a day that started horrible and turned wonderful. Maybe I was going to remember something in the middle of the day that was going to like lay me out flat on my back and I would be in my bed for the next week. Like I couldn't predict anything. And that in itself, like I can make jokes about it, but it, it is, it's, it's horrific. And I, my self-esteem also was in the gutter. I didn't have a person, I didn't have my person anymore, right? So I didn't have the person who I could go to, to who I would normally take all these feelings and talk to was the exact person who I did not have anymore. So it was like, I just didn't know how to communicate that. It's, it's just so lonely. And then it, it really becomes an obstacle to connect with people or to figure out how to do that again. So I feel like there were a lot of friends that I had before that time that I just sort of didn't have anymore because I, I just couldn't figure out how to socialize anymore with people because all I ever wanted to be like was like, do you know that my dad is dead? And do you know that before he died, like he didn't speak anymore and that he didn't know who I was and that he, he tried to kill himself and that he was in the psych. Like these are the only things I ever wanted to talk about, except I didn't also did not want to talk about them. Like I wasn't walking around being like, Hey, guess what? But I just didn't know how to talk to people anymore. Like, how do you go have a beer with someone and talk about their career aspirations when you just have like on loop in your head, all these things that have happened so fast that you still haven't processed. So I was really lonely. And I, and I think I've been really lonely for many years since like, it's very lonely. For the first six months, I felt like I was starting every conversation with when my mom used to. I don't know why I like couldn't stop talking about her, but not like, oh, she was sick and she did this. I just kept talking about like, if someone put a piece of chicken in front of me, I'd be like, oh, well, yeah, my mom used to make this really good chicken and it was like my favorite thing in the world. Like, I just couldn't stop talking about her. And I realized very quickly that that made people uncomfortable because everyone knew that my mom had just died. Like I was like a dam ready to burst where I was like, I just want to talk about her because like I want to like hold on to every single memory I had of her. I just, I also had this weird fear after she died that I was going to lose memories of her. I don't know why. And so after she died, I think especially like my strongest memories of her are of that last week of her in the coma. And I kept thinking to myself like, well, I don't want to lose any of those memories. I don't want to forget about that week. But I also don't want to forget like the real her because she wasn't herself that week. So I wanted to remember the real her. And so I think that's why I just kept talking about her and it made people really uncomfortable. And it honestly took me six months before I realized like, gotta cut that down. Yeah. But isn't that, isn't that fucked up? Like I, I, experienced that as well but in I had the opposite reaction to you where you're like I gotta cut that down where I was like no fuck you like I am gonna make you feel uncomfortable because I was really angry and and I just I thought like how how dare I have to live in a world where I'm not allowed to talk about this or like that that other people's comfort is now trumping 
I just felt like I I was like screaming into a void, like that I was r- running naked through the streets and that everyone was like turning their head being like, let's pretend everything's normal. And so I would make jokes and I would t- bring it up with the intention of making people feel uncomfortable because it was the only power I had. And I don't think it was necessarily the right thing to do. Like, like, no, we shouldn't be forcing our grief on people. But at the same time, like, yes, we should, because it's not fair that you have to go home and sit with all of that by yourself. You know what I mean? And even my closest friends, like, they did a they did a very good job of holding space for me. But th- but they're, they're also just humans. So that isolation, like that looking for connection. Um, I feel like now, you know, almost four years later, I still feel very lonely. Not in a specific like, oh, I want a person in my life. But it's like, I live alone. I have a cat. I feel great. But I still have like this internal loneliness of like, I can't really explain to anyone how this feels. I don't know. I did a weird thing after my mom died where, well, not weird. Everyone's grieving process is valid. But for me, I I went. <laughs> you know, it's so funny is that we can say that and roll our eyes, but it, yeah. it is true. But it, but it's like, yeah, yeah, your grieving process is valid. It is, it is true. It, they all are. But it, it's so funny to hear it from someone who is actually grieving. Yeah, you're back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like you want to constantly validate people, but you also like I never validate my own grieving process. I'm never like, oh yeah, that was a good choice. Right? It was good. <laughs> no. But like after my mom died, for some reason I started like being a lot more reckless in the several different ways, like drinking more, partying more, and like, you know, hooking up and things like that. And I went through I want to say like a solid three years where all I wanted, <laughs> all I wanted was to just find a relationship. Like I just wanted to be in a solid, stable relationship so bad. And yet I was in the most unstable <laughs> mental state I've ever been in my entire life because I was so like, I felt so empty inside because all I could think about is like, my mom died. Like I, I'm so sad all the time because my mom died and I can't explain that feeling to anyone. And so I just want to find a person that will make this feel all okay. I was literally trying to like fill the gap inside me with another person. I having been in, I was in a relationship when my dad died and then I moved uh, into the one that I'm in now. And it, it's not, those people, they can't do it. Like even it's not fair. I mean, listen, what's fair and what's not fair in a relationship? I don't know. It's, it's, it's not fair to expect that of somebody. I don't know that you are able to not expect that of somebody when you're uh, stuck in that mindset. But I know that in my current relationship, like it took a really long time for, for my partner to understand like that I'm grieving all the time. Being able to, I remember being able to articulate that for him was really big for me. Like, I remember him being like, I don't really love being around you when you're grieving because I was like really difficult. I think I'm just a difficult person, but I remember him feeling like that and that, that I had to take a step back and be like, but I'm always grieving. Like I'm always grieving. And, and if you don't, if you don't like me when I'm grieving or you don't want to be around when I'm grieving, then 
I think maybe you don't want to be around ever. And I, I think that was important for me to articulate and for him to hear, because I, I think moving forward, then it was a lot easier for us to like navigate, but it's, I, I can't like, it must've sucked for him to be my partner. Like, especially I didn't start grieving until I want to say like real grieving. <laughs> what does that mean? Nothing. <laughs> But, but really getting emotional, like really, really feeling the, the weight and reality of what had happened, I do not think I started that until two years after my dad died. I think I really, I was quite erratic uh, in those, the first two years and I was, mm-hmm. I was really having the emotions, but I don't think they were connected up with my brain and my body. Like those things, I was really working hard to achieve goals at that time my reality did not catch up with me until about two years, It about around 2014. So I, yeah, I don't know. I like, I don't think that being in a relationship alleviates loneliness because I still felt so lonely and misunderstood, you know, and, and it takes a lot for a partner to, to understand, like to, to really, especially if they're, they haven't experienced a loss either. Right. Like it's a learning curve for everyone. Yeah. In fact, in some ways, when I was in a relationship after my mom passed, the loneliness got worse because I was with someone who hadn't experienced that kind of loss. And the person was very understanding, trying to be very supportive, but ultimately just not. You can't feel what you can't feel, right? So they would try to understand why I was acting the way I was for like, I would have good days and bad days. And like when I was having like a really bad day, my go-to is actually similar to yours. Like I get angry, but instead of lashing out, I walk away. I'm just like, I'm, this is it. I'm abandoning it. I'm never looking at this forever. We should just break up. Please take your stuff and leave. Like that's, that was always my go-to. It wasn't until after that relationship ended. I think like a year after that relationship ended that I like kind of sat with myself and really was like, that had nothing to do with that person and had everything to do with yeah my mother and like the loss and grief that i was refusing to come to terms with yeah and it's still something that i'm figuring out exactly what you're saying like my reaction to grief is 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 actually quite the opposite it's i'm very angry but please 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 don't leave me was really always my thing is like, oh my God, don't go. Oh my God, are you leaving? Please don't go. And like, that was also like, because my dad died so suddenly, right? And 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 out of left field and really quickly. And, and I, it really fucked my self-esteem in a really deep way. And so I don't know what the right answer is. Like it, <laughs> it it's certainly not an easy thing to navigate with or without a partner let's say that feeling of loneliness or that feeling of, of that person missing, like it can't be filled with another person. It's just not possible. And that's the realization that took me like three years to get to, because for so long I was like, if I just find the perfect little puzzle piece, I think I can figure this out. (laughs) And it It took Yeah, it took three years of absolute misery and a year of being single to be like, right, it was never about the person. It was something entirely different. Yeah. 
And see, for me, that puzzle piece was always um, if I can do the correct steps to grieving. I went through a phase where, and it was quite a long phase, where I was like, okay, I'll read this book and that will help me. Okay, I'll, I'll join this bereavement group and that will help me. Okay, I'll write this piece and that will help me. Okay, I'll, I'll write, uh, I'll do comedy about it and that will help me. And I don't think any of those things uh, achieved what I was hoping that they would achieve, which was just kind of like sewing the wound up in a really nice, clean little way because I have done the correct steps of grieving, which is not a thing. But if you're an overachiever like myself, it's like, it's all about like, let me make the list of the things that I need to do and check them off as I do them. And then you get to your end of your list and you check off your final thing and you're like, what the fuck? It didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's done nothing. Yeah. I can't out, uh, like, I can't, I, I can't uh, steps, do the correct steps my way out of this. Like, it's not possible. So where you like tried to find a partner, I tried to. I tried to achieve the the things I thought were correct. Yeah. For me, it was like a combination of things. I, fi- I think the only way I can explain it is like after she died, I felt like for a really long time I was covered in mud and I was trying to find as many pools and lakes and oceans I could jump into to just like wash the mud off of me. So it was like different – pools of distraction, whether it was a partner or it was like going really hard at comedy for like two, three years, just like never stopping, not having a single night off. You cannot stop the grind because if you do, you will be irrelevant and that's it. You're dead. It was just so many, so many different things that I was just like, let me try this ocean. Let me swim as hard as I can. And I know that on the other end, I'll come out clean and I'll feel. I was looking for like absolution in a way, which sounds really, I don't know if it makes sense, but that's how I felt. I just like wanted someone to like pull me out of this ocean and be like, all right, you're fixed now. Good job. Yeah. So whether it was another person or it was like this dream comedy career that's like, oh, once you get to this level E class, you're just going to feel so great. (laughs) It made no sense. But that's what I was going at. I know. I had this, I had something similar of like, you better achieve all your goals. Like if you're not, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I, I felt similar. I didn't stop. I didn't rest. Uh, I think this is part of the reason that it took two years for my reality to sort of catch up to me in a way that was really devastating. Like I just felt like I ran into a brick wall that I had been running from a brick wall and it took me two years to run like right back into it. Mm. And I, yeah, it just, it became really important to me to, to be the best at things. I held on to up until like extremely recently too. Like I held on to this idea that like, if you can just be the best at things, then you don't have to sit and be with like what you really feel. Mm. If that makes sense. Like my career became extremely important to me in a way that I would not advise for anyone to, um, (laughs) to place that level of esteem uh, on your career, it is not going to have your back when you are at your lowest. 
it, it was just like, it was my life raft. It was like, if I don't have this, then I, I, then I don't have anything. And that was really scary for me. And this is, you know, this is also a combination of like grief that is intense and deep and, and long lasting and mental illness, right? When those two things have always informed one another, I think. I think for a long time I didn't get help for mental illness because I, I just assumed it was still grief. <laughs> but it took me a really, really long time to to pull those two things apart as well, right? So it's like I just put my my head down and my feet to the ground and I just started running, 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 achieving, achieving. And nothing was nothing is satisfying either when you're in that headspace, right? Like you're everything is just a check mark. Like, it's like, okay, great. I did a show. Cool. Everyone's staying to celebrate. No, thank you. I have to go home and I have to work some more. Like I have to make sure that I, like I enjoyed nothing. Subtracting like the last two years of my life, I enjoyed very little. It's so interesting because I keep mentioning this to my therapist. I think like, I don't know if I was talking about this before my mom passed away. Probably. One thing I keep talking about with my therapist is like, I can't hold on to good feelings. Like I'll do something great and I'll have like a good feeling of like, yes, I succeeded. And then five minutes later, it's gone. And I feel like that has become, I don't know if that was the case before, but I know that is how I felt um, after my mom died whenever I, when I was like, all right, I'm going into this pool of comedy. Like I'm just jumping and I'm going to do as much as I can. None of it, like I couldn't hold on to any of the positives. Like if I had a great show, yeah, I would walk off stage and I'd be like, great, great show. And by the time I got home, I was miserable again. Oh my God. I know this feeling so deeply. It is, it's yes. Everything is, is devoid of meaning except for those few seconds where you're like, okay, great. I did it. I got a good review. Cool. 10 seconds later, it's like, but what, who cares? I'm so sad. I've had, I had this uh, for years, years, way longer than anyone would ever expect you to be grieving and feeling like that. Yeah. And it felt like I was constantly chasing a high that I knew that I didn't really want and that, that it wouldn't really last. Like it was this weird thing of like, I want to get on this theater program. Gotta, 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 gotta do it. Got on. Okay, what's next? Like, nothing had value. Yes. <laughs> and it was soul crushing. It was like a terrible way to exist because I felt like I was, again, I was like sludging through life, covered in mud, just trying to figure out how to get this mud off me. Oh my God. I've never heard, I've never spoken to another person who, it describes this feeling like I'm sure many people feel it, but I have never talked to anyone else who felt this way. Like this is my whole experience of, of, of my career up until quite recently. It was just the, it, it existed for me as a, the only thing I had to keep me from just sinking away into a, a hole of nothingness. The happiness it's like you want it so badly, like you're just chasing it. I did it, but it's also quite stressful to get it because you know that it's going to go. I've spent a lot of time the last couple months really mourning that, like the loss of enjoyment of those things. 
because those are all things that I really loved to do. You know, like I love comedy (laughs) so much and I love performing and I'm very proud of the work that I created in those years. But I mourn so deeply for the enjoyment that was stunted. I've never heard another person describe this. (laughs) I'm so glad. Um, One of the clearest memories I have of that feeling of like nothing matters. Um, uh, It was the – so my mom passed away in March and that summer in July um, I was doing Toronto Fringe with my sketch troupe and we had like a great run. Like we literally had a fantastic run from start to finish and like every single day showing up to like – do our French show. Yeah, we're like doing so great. Da, 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 da. And then like after the show, going to the French tent. Yeah, party, drink, everyone's French. Like so great. Like just a magical 10 days. And then the last day of French after doing our show, we went to the French tent. And I remember as I was walking into the French tent, I was with my friend King. And I just like looked at him and I started bawling my eyes out I was like I don't know what's happening and he was just hugging me and he he has lost a parent too and Mm -hmm. he really helped me that year like in ways that I can't even really put into words but just he was just like there um Mm -hmm. and I don't know if he was crying for the same reason I was but we both just like were standing at the door of the French tent hugging and crying like I was crying so hard and I was like I don't know what's happening. I'm really happy. Like I had a great fringe run. We had this fantastic, magical week, but now it's over and I'm back to the bottom of the pit. And I know I'm going to wake up tomorrow feeling miserable and feeling like I don't know what I'm doing or where to go. Like it was that same thing of like, I had been chasing that high and I had that high for 10 days. For 10 days, I had like full distraction of like anytime I looked somewhere here's a person here's a new interaction like not a single moment of silence and then at the end of those 10 days when it ended I was like fuck I have to go back that was like the clearest moment for me of like I'm running from something and I I don't want to acknowledge to myself that I'm running from something but I'm definitely running from something I mean first of all king very special human being (laughs) A star. A star, I've always said. I love King. Yeah. Um, I mean that. I think very special. And I think it's so, uh, you're so lucky to have had him there uh, because of his ability to understand to some degree what you're experiencing. I think it's taken me a very long time to understand this about myself. And I think this might be. I don't, I never want to say what anyone else's experience it is, but I think this might be something that other people experience is that for me, at a certain point, like every loss is somehow tied back to that loss. So even very small losses become quite emotional for me. Um, and I think that's really difficult for people to understand when they don't know why you feel like really emotional over something that seems to them to be small. And this is why I say, I think you're so lucky that King was there because if it had been someone else, they may have just been like, why are you crying? We're at the French tent. 
but for me, like, it's like any change, any loss that I've had, like any, any friendship that's sort of faded away, any job that's gone away for me, the reaction has always been a hundred times more than I think it may have been for me if, if this other loss hadn't happened. It, this is the stupidest one is that when I got a new, <laughs> so my dad worked for a phone company and, uh, and I had a phone plan with this company, let's say, uh, for many years of my life. And when he died, I kept my phone plan with this company until I no longer wanted to. And I wanted to switch my phone plan. And the, the day I switched my phone plan, I cannot tell you how much I grieved. <laughs> like, and like, this is so like to a human, if a human being was watching me who had no idea, and this is, this is why I try not now, uh, having been the person who is having the reaction that makes no sense to anyone so many times in my life, I try my very best now when someone does something that's absolutely bonkers. Like if I see someone get angry about something, I'm just like, you know what, maybe, maybe there's a lot happening in that situation that I don't know. Because I, because I have been this person, right? So it's like, no one, like, you just don't know, like, why someone is having the reaction that they're having. And, and that doesn't mean we don't have to hold people accountable for things that they do in life. But I do think that, like, I, I now offer much elasticity for people. <laughs> because I'm like, I don't know. Like, what the fuck do I know what happened to you 10 minutes before you got here? I don't know. So like, these are, this is something that's really something that I've only come to learn in the last year or so is just that I think loss, once you have a big loss, that there, any number of things can trigger a connection to that. Just like having 10 days at a, a fringe thing that is so wonderful. And then that show is over and that's a loss. And it is worthy of grief. This is how I feel about most things. Your, <laughs> I love that. But your phone plan loss made me think of something that I haven't thought of in years. She used to wear a Fitbit on her on her wrist to like count mm -hmm. her steps. And when she died in the hospital, the nurses took the Fitbit off and handed it to me, just as like here this is a thing. And I took it and I, like, I put it on and I wore it all the time, always. And I think it was about a year later, the Fitbit died. Oh, <laughs> I kid you not. Like I bawled my eyes out. I was like, of course. I was like, this was the last touch I had of her and it is gone. Like I wore it at the same, like, you know, she wore it on her wrist. I wore it on my wrist. And now that connection is gone. And four years later, I still have that broken Fitbit in my nightstand. Of course. Oh, my God. Of course you do. My dad, my brother was like, get it fixed or like do something. I was like, nope, nothing. No one touches it. I'm not going to get it fixed. Even if I got it fixed, it's not going to feel the same. I just want it to sit in my nightstand for the rest of my life and for no one to ask me about it. <laughs> That's so funny. Do you know what I have? That's so dumb is I have a keychain, but it's not like it's not a sentimental keychain. It's just a keychain 
from the Honda dealership and it says ha- it says Honda on it and it's <laughs> and it's not attached to keys it's just in my um like in my jewelry box and it's it's just my dad's keychain that he got when he leased one of like a car like not any like I don't even know what car and it, it's just a Honda keychain <laughs> And I look at it and I go, that's special. And I and I will keep it until I'm dead. Like, I will never give that away. I don't want anyone to ask me any questions about why I need to keep this. Like, when I was moving, yeah. like, my dad was like, what is, what is that crap? I was like, don't you dare. <laughs> like, you will not ask me a single question about what goes in this box. <laughs> this box will live with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, I think that's so. And I I I find those things to be the most interesting like of course you can have things that were gifts and and I do have sentimental things that were like you know given to me Mm -hmm. from my dad but I find the things that I'm most protective of and that mean the most to me are the things that you would never like you would just never consider them to be mementos I have clothing that belonged to him like I have the sweater that he wore in the hospital and I I wear it and and I don't wear it often because I'm worried about, you know, like ruining it. But but when I'm having like a soft day, like I'll just put that sweater on and like I put it on um, when we were going to record last week. Mm. I had it on because I was like, you know, I'm actually kind of having a soft day. Like maybe I'll just wear this sweater while we record. And I <laughs> Lance walked by me and he's like, sweater smells weird. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like I don't know it just smells like real musty and I was like well this is the sweater my dad died in and he was like oh and I don't know if he like I, I know he knows that but I just don't think he had like put it like in walking by that he had put that together and I was like I've never washed it <laughs> he was like oh okay he's like well you know we can wash it and like <laughs> really supportive but also like your sweater smells weird and like (laughs) no (laughs) and like I just I have never washed it because I don't want to Mm -hmm. you know what I mean like I don't want he wore it in the hospital and like I don't know I just don't want to wash it yeah I don't want to wash off that hospital magic you know yeah (laughs) It's so strange the things that like for other people are are really morbid, but for you bring comfort or like not even comfort, but just like validate that that thing happened. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, this place really felt like a shrine to her. And I eventually took that wrist tag out, not because it was making anyone uncomfortable, but because I think I had reached a point in my grief journey where I was like, I don't need to see this every day anymore because this reminds me of the worst day of you. And I don't want to remember you as the worst day of you. And so I just took it out and I put it away in the box in my nightstand. So I still have it. I have that with the card uh, from my dad's funeral of like, there was like a, my mom had them made with just like his picture on the front and then like a poem inside. It's like a memorial card and it says like date of birth and date of death and whatever. And I, I had that up for years and now I, I've taken it down because I don't, I don't need, need it anymore up to see every day. I, I don't know. Like these are all, it's so funny. Like 
the things that you don't know about because no one else tells you, mm-hmm. um, which is so interesting. Like now that I say that is like, I, I hear mothers say that a lot when they like give birth. They're like, you know, there's just so many things people don't tell you about giving birth. But there's also like so many things people don't tell you about death. Yeah. And like, I had no frame of reference and I still don't. And like conversations like this, it's like blows my mind still when I hear people be like, well, this is how I feel about this. And I'm like, me too, (laughs) because no one talks about it. And it, yeah, it's just, you just sort of start to accept that like, this is that this is something that I need. She's right. It's up to us to take what we need. So go ahead. Take the time, take the space, take the Fitbit and the hospital sweater. Take whatever you need and take care. If this weekend is hard for you, I see you and you are loved. That's all this week. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to listen and please rate and leave us a review. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FindersGrievers, and write to us at FindersGrievers at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in two weeks. has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.